Welcome to this episode of the RF Industry Icons podcast. I'm Pat Hindle, and today I'm talking with Ference Markey and his son, Chris Markey. Welcome, guys. Yeah. Hi, Pat. So, Ference, you developed legendary mixer designs with Watkins Johnson and Vantech and then went on to found Markey Microwave. And then in 2017, Chris took over as CEO, and he's transformed the company from a mixer company into a full-line mimic company. So let's start with you, Ference. You kind of lived the classic American dream. You were born in Hungary during World War II and eventually made your way to the U.S. to start a high-tech company. Can you tell us a story about how you eventually came to the U.S.? Well, it was a long journey before. <laughs> came to the U.S. in 1963, but left Hungary, where I was born, in 1957. So from 57 to 63, there was a quite a bit of time. The time I spent in refugee camps in Yugoslavia, nine months ended up in Italy because my father got a contract with a local fencing club over there. He was a fencing master. We spent then six months in Italy. Then one day we realized that we will never be Italian. We'll never be anything in Europe but Hungarian. So we decided to move on, leave Europe altogether, and consider a lot of the countries. And we came to realize that Brazil is the place to go. And why? Because we knew so little about it. So we um, embarked on a big ship in Genoa, Italy. 17 days later, we were in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. From Rio de Janeiro, we uh, went to Sao Paulo, Brazil, and started five-year span in Brazil. In Brazil, I ended up being a goldsmith apprentice. What, what, what age were you when you arrived in Brazil? Uh, uh, 14 years old. 14. And uh, actually, in order to work at for a guy that had a jewelry or goldsmithing business, I had to get a license. So I have a, I had a license to work, so I worked. In three years, I decided to go and become self-employed because uh, there were so many people in, interested in buying the, the gold bracelets that I was making that I said, oh, I can do this by myself. I knew all this, all everything. So why was it so, so easy to sell? Because in Brazil, the inflation was so high that people wanted to put their money into US dollars or gold. That's what helped me. I was very good at it and I made a ton of money. But my father decided to come to the US and um, reestablish contact with his old uh, fencing protégés. Some of his, his students ended up in, in the Olympics and uh, they didn't come back to Hungary. So we left at the same time, but we didn't come to the US. Now we got a preferential visa at that time because my father was Olympic master, if you will. And um, we came to the US, but my father came first, a year later I came, and that another year later the rest of the family, my brother, sister, and my mom. Now in the US, 
at that time, in 1963, the Vietnam War was becoming very intense. The people like me had to register at, to the draft. I was drafted into the U.S. Army within six months. So I was a U.S. soldier during the Vietnam era. Okay, wasn't sent to Vietnam. I spent all the two years in the office taking care of the payroll of about four or 500 soldiers at a time. So they thought that I was good at math. I was not very good at anything else. I couldn't na name the parts of a car in English because I didn't speak English at the time. So they said, all right, he's good at math, so we'll make him into a pay specialist. So that's what I did for uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana, Fort Seal, Oklahoma, Banner, Henderson, Indiana, Fort Ord. Uh, little did I know that years later I lived there. But here we go. I had no high school education whatsoever. 10 years of my life was spent doing other things than going to school. What, what happened is that I realized somebody gave me a catalog of San Francisco City College. And in that, it says that if I take a test and I pass the test, they call this Stanford Achievement Test, then I can undertake college courses. So I came back from the Army, showed up at City College, took the test, and I passed. I rushed back to Fort Seal, Oklahoma, and um, I got out three months earlier because the school started in January, and I would have gotten out in April. So now... I was a student at City College of San Francisco. I decided to take only transfer courses to UC Berkeley. It took me one year, two semesters to finish all the courses that represent high school level courses. And then I started taking transfer courses. Ended up at UC Berkeley and uh, as an EE programs, I realized that there were classes that uh, were, gosh, big auditorium, 60, 70 people. These were the people that ended up working for computer companies much later. Like Fairchild. And Fairchild and, 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 national, and national, national semiconductors and others. Yeah, because Pat, Pat, consider that that's, that's the era where digital computing, I think, is really beginning to become it, it, a big deal so it, my it, dad and, and you didn't do that <laughs> no okay they, they did you went analog or, yeah the classes that they were teaching 60 people went in the class and another one which was which was physical electronics or physics mostly five kids and the professor was teaching guess what i chose the five kids the, the, the class that I could talk to the professor. I had four or five kids. And as far as the fields and waves and quantum mechanics and electronics and all that didn't bother me. I was not bad at, not as good as Christopher at math, but I was pretty good. Close enough. So you graduated and then you went to work for Watkins Johnson. Yeah. What were the those? Guy, the, the guy named Keith Kennedy whom you will find in it because he ended up being the president of Watkins Johnson, who sold the company. 
came out to Berkeley uh, and interviewed me, and they said, hey, we want that guy. They were impressed by the fact that I, was a, I could do jewelry. And so they hired me into the RALCOM department of the Solid State Division at WJ. RALCOM was a company that they purchased a couple of years earlier. The guy that started it was Vic Van Dusen, an HP engineer, and they were making the mini-circuit type of low-frequency hybrid coil type of mixers. These were up four, five hundred, six hundred, one thousand megahertz max. And I was hired into that department, God knows, and they never told me what to do. Just let me choose my way. And I decided to learn how to assemble their mixers and test them and offered everything. So I spent some time learning what they knew at that time. Then I decided what they don't know is how to make microwave mixers, anything higher than three gigahertz. So I decided to do those. So I surveyed the business and I found a couple of guys that were doing really well. One was Bob Mao at AirTech with the AutoStar and the other one was Don Neuf at RSG, his wideband mixers. Wonderful people. And I thought, uh, well, these are the guys to learn from. So I, I studied both of those things and I ran across one other mixer that Enzac manufactured. It was a wideband mixer and you use two double balance mixers in a push-pull configuration. And I look at that and say, hey, I don't have to do any hybrid coils or anything like that. I can just build it with balance. Since I knew how to build things really well, I took miniature coax and assembled the same mixer and it worked just fine. And it was basically like a little piece of jewelry, right? Yeah, it was just <laughs> like a little piece of jewelry. You were perfectly trained. Oh, I was very good at that stuff. Did so, you have certain mentors there that uh, taught you the trade? Or was it the people no, that the outside No, companies? nobody. They left me completely alone. In fact, my boss at that time, um, and when I finally finished, um, made one of the first microwave mixers that competed with both RSG and and um, AirTac, it was a four to 12 gigahertz mixer. And it was um, made with micro strip lines and everything with the brand new HP uh, diodes. And uh, no, I didn't have a mentor. So my boss said, hey, Ferenc, you said that it, it goes, IF goes up to four gigahertz, that's right. So why would anybody do that? The IFs were 70 megahertz, you don't need four gigahertz. <laughs> so this is how much support and mentorship I now. And how much vision your boss had. <laughs> my boss didn't last long over there. But um, what happened is that they didn't know. Microwave mixers were completely neglected except by these two gentlemen I mentioned to whom I regarding great respect. And so I was very successful. The, the product at WJ called the M12. Remarkably, WJ had system division, recon and other. And they needed a mixer to down convert it to, to four gigahertz. And guess what? 
there it was. I became instant famous. <laughs> I was right and they were wrong. <laughs> I sold several hundred mixers, but I couldn't build it. I told a couple of guys at HP who purchased HPA, a diode manufacturer. And I told them that I need certain low capacitance diodes. And they, it took them one year to develop it. And they did it for me because they believed what I was doing was the future of, of that kind of mix. Well, they did it. Is that beam lead technology? Yes, it was a monolithic beam lead technology on a piece of ceramic platform with the diodes. You know, it's, it's a, it looked exactly the same as today. The dimensions were identical to what we came up with. Because at the time that the challenge was capacitance. And capacitance. All. It needed low capacitance. Otherwise, it would, would, would short out everything and it wouldn't work. Well, they did it. And before Christmas that year, manufactured all the mixers. They shipped them out and I was instant success. And so ironically, the, your first big customer was your own company. Yeah. But it was the yeah. systems group. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was it, the components group selling to the system. That's group. right. The yeah. system group thought that I was a genius because uh, they could not buy such a thing. And uh, so we uh, got into that and uh, they promoted me to be the R&D section head in the R&D department. They took me out of Railcom and they gave me about three or four guys to keep an eye on. They were amplifier designers mostly and other things. I could then do whatever I wanted. Uh, I, I believe very early that the integration of microstrip integration or connectorless assemblies, system assemblies are the future, next generation. So I've operated in two arenas, the mixers, as well as the packaging. And those two came together. So there was a program that today the Ambram missile, that time was going to be awarded to either Raytheon or use aircraft. And use aircraft had an idea that they will put the whole assembly of mixer, amplifier, switch assembly on one small platform and put them on, on gimbal. So they called it the on gimbal processor. So right, uh, so on gimbal meant that the uh, antenna system was right in front of this platform. And I made the part original prototype and use aircraft got the order based on that because they were going to make the AMRAM missile. The Phoenix missile was the big, big guy that was going to be replaced with the little guy. The, the AMRAM missile was the, one of the first missiles that I used to call had its own flashlight on. <laughs> the others had to be shined yeah. in order to operate. Raytheon ultimately got a piece of the action and there it was. And I moved on. Uh, I developed amplifiers with my, I'm not, I wasn't going to be an amplifier guy. In fact, one of the reasons I have chosen the mix, mixers, because nobody else wanted it. It wasn't, wasn't you know, sexy it enough, was huh? like black magic. Yeah, you know, who wants to do black magic? 
Yeah. That's not for engineers. Amplifiers are for engineers. Maybe an oscillator, but certainly not a mixer. <laughs> so I, I, I took the mixer and said, okay, this is it. That's what I want because I was always that way. The crowd went one way, I went the other way. <laughs> I early realized that the mixer was an integral part of any system. You create the signal, you, you make, an, uh, make a nice oscillator, but now what do you do with it? You have to place information on it and take it off and that sort of thing. Amplifier was on the bottom of the line because it only amplified. My big goodness, it doesn't do anything else. <laughs> That's pretty boring, yeah. <laughs> and so I realized that nobody's minding the mixers. And that gave you a certain amount of freedom at WJ, I would imagine. Oh, my cause... goodness, because nobody knew about what I was doing. Uh, ultimately, I was selling mixers uh, out of my R&D de uh, department. And I had all together about seven people in there, and some assemblers and this. I made lots of money. Finally, they took that pro project away and gave it to the production guys, which was just fine. <laughs> and uh, so WJ became quite successful with those mixers. I actually performed a, what they call the man, man loading or how, how, how many people will take and this and that, what equipment we need to manufacture these products, these are assemblies. And this same guy that hired me, Keith Kennedy said, no, I'm not giving you the production. For AMRAM. For AMRAM. I'm giving it to another guy. I said, okay, Keith, in that case, I'm moving on. And so I called was up, that when you called up Avantech? I and... called up Avantech. I talked to Larry Thielen, the uh, president of the company, and a big guy. I said, Larry Thielen, do you want mixers? I said, yeah. Okay, hire me. And he did. And that was 1979, right? Yes, it was 79. It was uh, about, what, was a year after you were uh, before? I was born in 80. So Christopher was born during the time that I was at Avantech. At Avantech, I was interested in two things. One, develop a carrier, uh, simple assembly, just on a carrier, rather than a three-piece uh, assembly. Because Avantech would not give me an assembly. The engineering staff over there at that time resented me in a way. <laughs> Who is this guy? We don't need him. And... Um, I uh, developed the carrier assemblies. That's what started my carrier mixers. Realized that Avantech was not going to support me the way I wanted. I wanted a department. I wanted people. I wanted to build integrated assemblies at Avantech. They said no. So I said, and at that time, somebody called me up from Western Microwave. I said, look, we like to hire you. We heard so many good things about it. Will you come? So I decided to accept the offer, which was very generous. And the vice presidential, oh, you're the vice president of the MIC division now. Okay. And uh, the guy named Bob Goff asked me, so why do you want to go there? You don't have anything there. I said, yeah, I have dirty pots and pans. I clean it. I cook a dinner. But you don't even let me. You have all the beautiful things. 
laser sealing and this and that. And you don't even let me sit there, watch it. So I'm out of here. So I left Avantech for that purpose. Larry Thielen died in Hawaii, snorkeling. So the other guy became the president and ultimately they sold the whole company to HP. So I was at Western. I had 17 people and uh, started this getting the- And they had, they had, I'm curious about this. So Avantech, did they have mixers when you started there? No, the Avantech didn't have mixers. They had a couple of low frequency mixers that they were building for their micro, they had a microwave uh, radio uh, business. So, so you, you built them a catalog. And yeah, then, then, I, I I actually designed the kettle, and then and then you went to Western, and they also did not have mixers. Uh, 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 Western microwave had one ceramic mixers mixer that they were building for ASPJ or some Westinghouse company. I introduced mixers at that time on Duroid and package diodes and that sort of thing. And, yeah, and a uh, lot of those designs lived on for many decades, right? We still sell them. They took hold because they were much easier to build than the, the fantastic Bob Mao mixers with miniature coax. They were tremendously difficult. So took advantage of the good HP diodes and such. HP supported me 100%. And um, at Western Microwave, the military programs at that time started building up. I forgot why. Um, th- there was a lot going on. Well, oh, the, yeah. The, the Reagan era. <laughs> Reagan, the B-1. Yeah, you got the B-1, B bomber. All that. I, I was represented on more ways than you name it. I, I was building computers, assemblies, all kinds of things with the B-1, B. Even though it wouldn't fly, but <laughs> I did some of the some of the computers and assemblies and, and all. You mentioned that Chris was born around that time. Um, he was he's an Avantech baby. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going at. So, Chris, can you uh, you graduated from University of California, San Diego, in two thousand seven and majored in photonics? but you immediately joined your father uh, at Markey Microwave. Was that something you intended to do from the beginning or was it watching him uh, solder mixers in his garage that turned you on? No, no, actually I would say that it's the opposite. Uh, Watching my dad solder mixers maybe not 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 want to do this world. He was still still at uh, San Diego and went to a show, I think it was in LA and he said, dad, well look at, your mixers will be outdated in no time at all. <laughs> and little, and he was prophetic because the outdating was his doing. <laughs> so, yeah. so he yeah, made himself I, right, I, uh, you know? I, uh, isn't that like a Freudian thing? You slay your father or something like that? Uh, yeah. yeah, there's some kind of um, uh, poetic myth to this. But uh, well, yeah, they, no, I, uh, watching my dad do all this, I had actually very little awareness of what he was doing back in the eighties. And then, you know, into the nineties when he formed the company, I would say when I was a teenager and Marky microwave existed at that point, and I'd walk the floor, you know, watching the assembly process and all that. I, I was not taken by it. I wasn't, I wasn't the kind of kid who was fascinated by the ham radio stuff at all. I was 
I was more interested in, you know, guitar yeah. and soccer. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was, um, it was my dad's thing. I put it that way. It was my, it was my dad's hobby. First established that it was needed and Christopher called it a uh, niche technology. And I tried to supply mixers to people what they wanted. So I went, every time I talked to a customer, I interviewed them deeply. In other words, what would you do? How would you do it? What kind of mixer would you need or whatever? So I've tried to sort of satisfy their dream. And, and it wasn't that I was pushing the mixers down their throat. I made the mixers so they couldn't refuse to buy it because they performed, they were small, easy to assemble, and repeatable. And repeatability was a very important thing. So, so Pat, that would be actually the way I would answer the question is when I was growing up watching, like, you know, and I did photonics and all that, but I was I thinking about joining my dad? No, it wasn't until I saw my dad do exactly what he just described, where he was, you know, making a customer's dreams come true, if you will, where, where he was using his engineering and uh, assembly skill, his jeweler's skill, if you will, to add value to a very difficult problem. That's really what appealed to me. To this day, I feel the most noble thing an engineer can do is solve somebody else's problem. And so it was kind of like the actual way he, my dad was solving the problem wasn't that interesting to me, but certainly the, the opportunity to, to do, do that and then, and then uh, add economic value to you know, your company and your family, that, that really appealed to me. See, I, one thing I have to say, that it was deeply seated belief that as an engineer, I'm here to do what Mother Nature allows me to do, discover the secrets that it held. Not, so I, I felt that I was not inventing mixers. I was discovering them. It was a very good thing because it gave me a peace of mind that if I fail, I'm not responsible for other than I haven't found the recipe yet. A lot of engineers coming out of school believe that they are here to invent. And that puts a tremendous burden on their soul. It, they want to invent. And, and, and if they believe that they're here to question Mother Nature, do a lot of learn how to test, learn how to do, make. And every time you make a proposition, this is what this thing is going to do. And if it didn't do it, why? And so on. So this idea of, uh, of science and engineering. Scientists don't have to build things and make people happy with them. Engineers are the ones that finally make the thing that make people su successful in an area. Yeah, they apply the science. Uh, apply the science. So uh, I um, claim that engineer, good engineers are scientists in their own right. They have to be, otherwise they would not succeed. And um, that helped a great deal. So I was always, and I tried to formulate families of mixers, how one mixer circuit relates to other. And to the very end, the last mixer that I did was a D3, a, a, a D3 mixer. You might have heard about it, highly yeah. mixer. And that I considered the missing link all along. I would position it into the family of mixers 
And uh, I say, this is where it belongs, but I don't know how to make it. And it belongs here. And I call it the missing link. And that missing link became a reality one day when I was trying to explain to Christopher, he was already with us, uh, how mixers work. And I suddenly realized I didn't know how to explain many things. So I started thinking about it. And the result was the creation of the T3. So thanks to Christopher. <laughs> he made you think too hard. <laughs> yeah, because I realized. Well, it's, it's the classic uh, child asking why too many times, right? Pat? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I made him challenge his own dogma. Yeah. <laughs> yep. so, so that was very good because that's exactly what had to happen. So finally, the T3 became part of the big mixer family. So, Ferenc, you were very successful at all these companies. We didn't get to, you know, why did you found Marky Microwave? That's right. Uh, the reason is that the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990, roughly. And um, the uh, availability of military programs that sustained this microwave business, you know, all, all these companies started to sort of shrink away or they were not going to grow. The company I worked for at that time, Western Microwave, was experiencing big difficulties. And ultimately, I had to leave the company and um, try to find other way to make a living. And called up WJ, the same guy, Keith Kennedy, had a lunch with him. And ultimately, he says, friends, why would I? Because I said, OK, I want to go back to WG and take the, take the line that I built and other things. He says, no, we have your mixers. We have your amplifiers. We have everything that you did. We know the customers. We don't need you. You're too expensive. <laughs> wow. I said, well, one thing that you, are, you could have bought, I said, Keith, Keith Kennedy is that I'm going to build the biggest competition for your mixer line that you, I will, <laughs> I will destroy your mixer line. And he <laughs> laughed at it. And I was- and how, uh, how big, I'm curious, how big was WJ at that time? Uh, WJ must have been something in the order of 200, 300 million. So, so it, was, it was like really Sizable. ridiculous for you. You walk up to like, I don't know, LeBron James, he's saying, I'm going to beat you in one-on-one. And then you're like a <laughs> high school player. And he's just laughing. <laughs> and so we parted with that. Yeah. Not too long later, you can look it up in the archives. WJ, Keith Kennedy, sold WJ bits and pieces. And the WJ ceased to exist. So you were out of a job. I was out of the job. And I tried, tried other ways, other companies, and nobody wanted me. And so Christine Mark, Christopher's mom, my wife, Christine, you hear. On November 18, we decided to go ahead and uh, start Mark and Microwave. And almost exactly 30 years to yeah, today. Today is years. November wow. 12. Yeah. And she was, yeah. a, she was a big force behind the scenes too, right? Oh, Christine, without her, I would not have been able to do any of what we did because she took care of finances. She took care of accounting, payroll, and everything. I didn't have to worry about those things. I worried about both Wiltron and HP gave me a lease buy option on beautiful equipment 
I tested every mixer. I built the initial every mixer later on. I had one or two or three. I had one QA manager that learned how to do AutoCAD. His name was Herb Knight, wonderful guy. So it was Herb, Christine, me, and two assemblers. And uh, we, I had the philosophy that I had to do it slowly, build up my our strength slowly. We didn't make money for two years at all. We sustained ourselves without it. And then, fortunately, the micro, uh, the microwave telecommunication business started to take place. These were point-to-point, so like microwave radio. And hey, before you before you get into that, I want to I want to ask you a question. I don't think I've ever asked this to you directly, and it's a it's a question I get all the time, actually, from like younger students. Mm. So when you started, there's always a question these days regarding funding yes. and venture capital and things yeah. like that. So how did you make the math work regarding, okay. like, like what was your approach to not having funding and all of that? Fortunately, uh, we had property, we had a house and we uh, used some of that money. Christine inherited the Brown Trust mm-hmm. and the Brown Trust, which was Christine Moore, Christine's dad's trust. We used some of that money to sustain ourselves. It was the, the thing that we only rented a very small place to, for manufacturing these mixers and uh, went very slowly. But I, I, guess, I guess that's kind of like the point I think that is interesting in a sense is that you, it, was, it was self-funded based on you know, the, the assets that you had available right. to you. And then the big difference w- between what I see in like the modern life and, and what you were thinking yes. at the time was you were trying to make something that was foundationally strong mm-hmm. and you, you didn't have, let's say, growth expectations yeah. or, or you I, weren't I, trying I, to get to a certain mega size to explain. justify the work. Some companies in the Silicon Valley were created and put together to sell the company. In other words, they were more interested in create a company that could be sold. The product was the company. Product was the company. In our case, the product was the product. It wasn't matter. So what? We, we had to eat with it. I assembled the mixer. I didn't need an assembler. I've tested the mixers. I didn't need a tester. So it was self-generated activity between Christine with the finance, and uh, I had the technology part of it. We survived two years. We went to the bank to, just to have a line of account, just something that we didn't want any loans or anything, and they wouldn't even give it to us because they said, well, if your company survives three years, then you can come back. <laughs> and you will have a line of credit. They were playing the odds there. Oh, yeah, yeah they were. <laughs> so, so that's a we big were, mistake for Wells Fargo because uh, we we don't we don't bank with them now. <laughs> yeah, I have a credit card from Wells Fargo. They were one of them. And um, important thing is that I wasn't going to pick up anybody that came in with small money. There were there was a machine shop that wanted to come in with fifty to hundred. You need to invest. Invest in the company and getting getting um, part of the shares. I wasn't going to allow to because I was watching 
Dan Cheadle, you probably heard Cougar, you look it up. Dan Cheadle was a friend of mine. We worked together at WJ. He started an amplifier, a little amplifier company, but he sold shares for money. So the company was owned by five or six different people. And he regretted, he was telling me he regretted he's ever done that. So I wasn't going to do that. Yeah, you lose control. <laughs> look, look, completely. Yeah. So there we were. Now back to the microwave telecommunication companies. These were mountain top to mountain top, mostly used by people in those days are big companies and banks and whatnot. This is pre-cell phone business. If you look it up. But, but, but the beginning of commercial wireless. Yes, it was the beginning away, of commercial yeah. wireless. And uh, by the time I showed up and introduced to these people, they were saying, parents, build our mixers, build our amplifiers. We are tired of building them. We just want to put them together to sell. So they welcomed me and I sold literally thousands of these components like Nortel in Canada and such. And I made their product possible to build for a reasonable price. So that is suddenly was very successful and saved Marky Microwave. The realization that the Soviet Union did not just simply disappear and we are no longer in some kind of a cold war, that was, we realized that that was nonsense. So the, we, we started embracing the military electronics business once again. And that's when- But it took, about, it took about 10 years. I mean, the, it, first, it, the first 10 years of the business, so the entire 90s, I don't think that's there, right. there was much of a military business yeah. for us. And subsequently, not only that there was no military business in the last 10 years of the century, but kids, young people didn't go and get engineering degree. So when Christopher realized that, hey, it's so hard to hire, where are these guys? Because well, there's like a missing generation. I missing think. generation. I think, I think that what, yeah, like, Ten years. I don't think there was a lot of, uh, there weren't a lot of RF jobs, <laughs> as many jobs until the whole industry pivoted into the wireless business. Yeah. yeah. And cell phones hit. It was more computing driven, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or like the internet, right? The nineties the, yeah. the was really the heyday where the internet became really sensational for software developers. <laughs> so why, how did Marky survive when there were so many other mixer companies, there were a lot of hybrid mixer companies, they all oh, were acquired um, and dismantled. Mixers in general, not a high selling, you know, you, you may be able to capture 20, 30 million dollars. The mixer business in the country is not as big as to be able to support a lot of these companies. So there was no incentive on their part to, su to support it. And I gave them so much competition, that strong competition that they didn't have a chance. They tried it and they fell apart. In fact- Well, it was an issue. I, I would actually say the other thing you're discounting is the fact that because you started First of all, you were, star <laughs> you were starving and hungry in the 90s, and you had strong incentive to push the art. And the companies that didn't hire you, like WJ, they had existing catalogs. Right. And there's no way the executive teams were going to invest in the engineering right. to make better mixers when 
Westinghouse wasn't asking for better mixers in the 90s. And so you had the advantage that you were seeking out a new market and that they probably were mostly ignoring at that time. In fact, I told Keith, Keith Kennedy at the time I wanted to go back to WJs that you think that you can compete with me with the 70s, 80s mixers, with 90s technology. I mean, it's impossible. Yeah. So, so you you were you were designing mixers that were actually more modern, more more modern, and 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 you were competing with the old guard. Now, our philosophy, both Christopher's and mine, is that eventually your mixers, your creations, will be outdated. It will no longer be marketable easily. So you have to design the next step and the, the next generation and so on. There was a never ending cycle. It goes on and goes on. And what Christopher had been able to do and do it with such success is to take on the generational transition, go and do the mixers to up and with my blessing, design out my old mixers with the new ones. You have a saying, right? When you stop innovating, you go hungry. You said that in a microwave journal interview. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, the, the article that, that, that came out in microwave journal called the, you, you're just an engineer. That sort of tells you a lot of these things. Absolutely correct. You have, you know, I call it innovation, but you have to have a strong willingness to do that. It's not easy to say my old mixers are not as good because you believe that, oh, I did so much. It's it's, it's so wonderful. And so that was very important. And to this day, go on, do other things. And if your technology allows, you bring in other products as well. And that's what Christopher is doing. So I'm, I'm glad to see it, but I'm just a lucky guy. The company is lucky to have him. That first he came in with a little bit of, well, I don't know if I want to do this, but came to realize that he has a lot of fun. There was one other thing that I kept saying. Use the money that you make today to springboard the new things that you will do tomorrow. So don't hesitate to invest in the technology that you constantly run, uh, create newer and newer things. Yeah, so, so that kind of leads me into the new direction. You know, Chris, you took over in 2017 um, and then you decided to completely, you know, redo the company and completely change its direction to be a mimic company. You know, what led you to make that big leap? I mean, it wasn't just a small innovation of different products. It was completely new direction. So, it's funny. I was I was talking to somebody uh, in in an interviewee just last week about that question because this person had has been around the industry for I don't know twenty plus years, and so he said he said to me, uh, "Gosh, you know, it just seems like you guys have exploded on the scene." <laughs> and I said, "That's just that's just marketing." <laughs> so well, there's a lot of work behind there for it, many years. Probably. Well, it's but I guess my point is it's not a um, discontinuous jump. Uh, it's actually been a very slow and carefully plotted path. Um, there's, you know, a very smooth dotted line from step to step. And so the mimic pivot, if you want to call it that, took about five years 
before we actually released any mimics. And what happened was, um, and, and we, we featured it, we, we have a patent on the microlithic um, mixer. And, and that was a big, that was a big stepping stone. Cause that was, what that was, was um, when I started at Marky Microwave, everything that my dad had designed was empirical and like literally experimental prototyping. Uh, there was no design from like a CAD point of view, like EDA tools point of view. And in fact, we didn't even have a VNA. <laughs> my dad did everything with scalar measurement. And so um, I looked at I looked at what he was doing and I said, I don't, I don't know if this is sustainable long-term. Like we're going to have to invest in some of these tools if we want to make products better because otherwise we're guessing. And, and the thing about guys of my dad's generation is, is that they just have this intuition that a young engineer can't have because it's, you know, it's experience. And so when he would, when he would debug a design, I'd be like blown away by how he would know where in the circuit was the sensitive piece. Like, where do you, why, how did you know to put the ferrite in that location? You know, it's like, he would just know. And, and um, I recognize that a, I didn't want to do that. I, I just, it wasn't interesting to me and, and B I wasn't sure I could do it, which is maybe the more important thing is like, how do you, how do you sit in Ferenc Markey's footsteps or, you know, how do you, how do you wear his shoes? And so the decision was for me was that I was going to try to model the mixers and I was going to try to model the things we were, we were producing. And, and I got good at it. I got good at HFSS. I got good at microwave office. I got, I've always, you know, coming out of a PhD, I, I was generally very well versed in reading the research and you know, implementing my own code and MATLAB or whatever it would be to, to do the designs. And so what happened was it was like my dad and I kind of joining forces in a sense where he had the sense of what to do, what was interesting from a circuit point of view, like what was hard to do, what was easy. But then I could bring a whole new aspect that he couldn't do, which was like, how do you optimize it? How do you make it perfectly designed? Because his designs weren't perfect. That, that's one of the things I, I learned very early on is that he was making mistakes because he couldn't see that they were mistakes. But I could see it because of the design tools. So anyway, it took a good seven or eight years of collaboration, if you will, on that you know new generation, old generation, to feel like the design flow was really, really good. And all of the stuff that we had released over the first five or six years of my time there um, was developed with that new methodology, which wasn't new. It was just like we we brought in. It was new for Marky. Other people had been doing it, but um, once we realized that the design tools were super accurate, then it became possible to say, well, if we were to get into more aggressive things like semiconductors, like mimics specifically, and we were losing to Hittite plenty. You know, we, we were losing mixer slots all the time, and I would go talk to customers and. What was interesting about the feedback from customers was that they would say that the main reason we lost to Hittite mixer slots was size. And there was just no way, you know, uh, on this green earth that we were going to be able to make handmade mixers as small as a mimic. <laughs> and so that was really what forced us into a position where we said, okay, we have to adopt new manufacturing, but the new manufacturing requires really, really good modeling. So that's really what happened was we tried to modernize and make use of modern manufacturing, which meant integrated circuit. And because we had developed the design tools, it was very seamless. 
So whereas it might seem like a big leap to say, oh, I'm going to get into mimics, the fact was that I had been laying the groundwork for eight years this, before we did This it. is very important to know. People that want to get into the mimics have a hell of a time getting into because they have the technology, how to make a mimic, but they don't know how what to make. In other words, yeah. <laughs> they don't have the background knowledge of technology the market the market knowledge I, yeah. I would say like knowing knowing what customers needed so i've always asked myself this question and, and maybe i'll go maybe you can introduce me to the guy like who would know on the inside but like why didn't hittite reverse engineer ference's designs from the 90s because it never made sense to me why they didn't try because if you go crack open the you know the qfn packages and look under the microscope they are not doing what Ference did and what Don Neuf did, uh, and, and 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 they could have. <laughs> one answer, really weird. I, I one answer that came from a, a customer said that the reason that you were not copied, if you will, that intensive, is because your mixers were very difficult to assemble. Because I introduced assembly techniques that they thought it was. Bad. Yeah, they figured it was too difficult and expensive. Yes. So why why bother looking at it? Why bother? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, like that, that and that that definitely is the case. If if you were to do a dissection of what my dad's designs would do versus what my designs would do on, on a chip, it's like I'm relegated to a two and a half dimensional space. Um, my dad wasn't. My dad could use full three dimensional construction to to you know bring the wires in from a certain direction and all these things and. You know, go. You can go buy HFSS and prove to yourself that the way my dad did it was really useful. It, it allowed for things that you just can't do on chip. It, it has to be said that I used to spend years to develop a mixer. Christopher could do it in one week. Oh, yeah. it was because he could run simulation programs. I had to build a ton of mixers to find out bit by bit what worked and what didn't work. Oh, that's a good point. You had to do a lot of prototypes to get one. Oh, yeah. Working you, you should see the graveyard in my dad's <laughs> desk. It's 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 pretty ridiculous, actually. So you both really have a entrepreneurial spirit and you're always looking ahead to what's the next thing to keep you competitive. You know, how do smaller companies have advantages over larger ones? Because it seems like you've really oh, uh, I, taken let advantage me of that. that question. These products like mixers are enormously difficult to, to deal with. Some people say, oh, because it's a nonlinear function and all this. And, and, and larger companies don't have the ability to sell to so many different customers. So they don't get the input of the industry of what the new type of mixer is needed or component. So a little guy like me, who's in touch with all of them, essentially, I can get their opinion. But if they try to do it themselves, they only have to deal with their own opinion. So Pat, let, let me answer that question. Like, uh, So let me state what my dad just said, because I actually think it's a really interesting business point that people could really you know, do well to understand. So as Marquis gotten bigger, I think we're almost at 200 people now. What I've noticed is, is you get this interesting scale problem where when you're small, you can kind of do everything. And, and certainly my dad and I both can do almost everything within the company when we're 50 people large. 
um, even up to about a hundred people, I could do almost, I could do almost every job, let's say like with some basic understanding of what the job entails, because the systems were simpler, the processes weren't very elaborate. As you get bigger, you require specialists. Like you have to have like, you know, more professional accounting people and you have to have planners and you have to have like supply chain and all these things that when you're, when you're 40 people, you just don't, you know, my guy, my dad would just call up metallics and say, I need, I need new diodes. And then Francis Kwan would say, okay, Ferenc, here's a quote, you know, it was very organic. So what happens is when you're small, my, and, and what my dad's saying is that he would literally talk to every customer we had. And he was aggregating a tremendous amount of information in, in his mind. And it was just his daily experience. He was, he was on the phone all day with people. And, and so he was doing market research by talking to everybody. What happens is that as you get bigger and the disadvantage of big companies is that in large part, you have an information flow problem. So information will be more compartmentalized. So even though a company like analog devices, which who has easily probably 10, probably a hundred times more unique customers than Marky, whether that information is centralized and used to be, you know, more hundred times more impactful from a decision-making and product development point of view, I would say is a questionable suggestion. In other words, there are people at ADI, and by the way, I, I'm not, I'm not denigrating them. They're a fantastic. And I, I look up to them in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to like, you know, how you should run a semiconductor company. But the point I'm making is that when my dad would be making, or when I'm making product development decisions, we are aware of almost every customer's input. And is that going on at a bigger company? Usually not because that's not how they're going to be structured. And maybe, maybe it is, maybe, maybe the information will flow up from sales channel all the way up to a VP level who makes the decision. But here's the difference. That VP is not the one doing the firsthand conversations. And, and the companies that I was talking to were not, they were eager to share their experience and help them to design yeah. their products. But if you're a large company, another large company, your competitor will not share anything with you. So the large companies increasingly get, they get isolated in the for, when it comes to being in the forefront of product development, they can put together the large system by buying all the parts, but they can't make their own part. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the, the simplest answer, besides all the, I guess, the more like convoluted explanation I just made is uh, the advantage of being small is that when Ferenc Markey is talking to the customer and he's the designer and the guy who makes the decision, he makes the decision and he moves and he'll do it. And, and the thing that I, I, one of the biggest lessons I ever learned from my dad is you do what you say and you say what you do. Like you, my dad has a famous reputation for, for being direct. And, and so do I, I think that if I tell the customer I can do something, I mean it. And if I tell them they're crazy, I also mean they're crazy. Um, now I, that doesn't mean I'm right. But, but, but it, it means that's what I believe. I believe it's a crazy request. And, and I've heard my dad say it, but I think that when you're small, you can get away with it a little bit, but also I think people really respect you because you, you are not going to waste their time. Yeah. You definitely have a more candid conversation. Yeah. So that so, brings me to another question is, um, 
you know, how do you decide what new products to develop? Because I like that you have a strong evaluation process there. I've heard you talk about, you know, how you really assess whether a product's worth developing or not. It's very intuitive. Well, what I would say is that when I've watched my dad do it, I think it actually comes back. It's almost more of a visceral thing. Like, and I, I suspect it's from like his uh, jeweler's point of view, but like, I always thought it was amazing when my dad would talk to a customer and uh, he would just know what a good opportunity was. Like, do, uh, can you articulate that? Yes. I am a very opportunistic guy. I go into, and I, I don't know any, but suddenly it says, oh, that makes sense. When that, when that occurs, you take the opportunity to create those. Oh, somebody said that this would be a good. So suddenly opportunist, being opportunistic is a good thing. But I, I want to push Make back on that. How do you know it's a good opportunity? That's, you, that's oh, oh, you feel it. That, that's what part of it. When you, <laughs> no, that's not fair because you have like 50 years of experience. Yeah, so how, of how, how would you explain, how would you explain okay, it to me? I'll explain it. Nothing comes easy. I spent 20 years of my life being an engineer at three different companies. At Marky Microwave, now we celebrate 30 years. So I've been in this business for 50 years, half a century. Three people would have retired by then <laughs> in success. Okay, so in other words, what it, it sounds to me like what you're saying is uh, that how do you choose what to work on? You have to have sort of lived and breathed it for long enough to, right. to have the pattern recognition to yeah. to just say, I know what's I know what's good. So Pat, I guess what we're saying is uh, we don't know how to articulate it. We we are we're we're guessing. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I've heard you, Chris, I've heard you say that you you look at the product and say, can I really add value here? Is it something yeah. unique right. that I can well, meet this need yeah, uniquely without, you know, going, you know, there's a lot of me too products in the market and I don't want to be one of those. I want to add some value. And that's how I pick. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, okay. So we do have a checklist. So if, okay. If, if you break down like Ference and Chris's uh roadmap. Okay. So what we do is um, the first thing is, we know who we are. I, I think that's actually really important. Like Marky Microwave is a performance first company. We are not a, a um, cut cost first company. So we're, we're doing the uh, Tesla Mercedes thing. We're not doing the um, Walmart thing. No, and, or the Costco thing. That's not, it's not denigration. Like both, both business models work. So if it's not a performance question, we ignore it. Um, then it's a, um, do we have anything unique, a unique spin on it that gives us an advantage? And then, and we don't generally, maybe the, maybe this is part of the answer too. Historically, my dad and I never really looked too much at what the total market or potential of a customer was. We really looked at it as to whether or not we felt that it gave us a technical advantage that we could exploit across many customers. Exactly. That's so in other words, the, the question of how much will it cost, uh, is it worth doing because we don't want to invest in it or not want it. Just the sheer joy of finding out that something worked was sufficient enough in some cases. I found that some things that I discovered, it took a couple of years before finally somebody said, hey, I want that. So in other words, you create a storage of ideas and things that you've proven right, and you wait for the opportunity to strike and go and create the product. 
because ultimately everything comes down to this. Make a product that people want. And, yep. and that is the whole business of business. If you make a product that people want, they will spend money. If they want, if you make a product that people don't want, you have a hell of a time selling. That's where the salesmanships come in. So you don't have to be a very good salesman if somebody wants your product. <laughs> so uh, looking ahead, what do you guys see as the future of Marky Microwave? Where, what's your next step? Well, okay, so what's the future? Um, the future is trying to become more, more of a, a broad portfolio business. And, you know, a big, a big part of, I think, the, the current, in fact, this is, this is a stated goal amongst, like, you know, the leadership team, which is that in a lot of ways we want to, we want Ferenc and Christopher to be less important because so much of, well, I mean, certainly the first 20 years, everything was dictated by whether or not my dad had good ideas and then um and whether my <laughs> whether my mom was able to sort of corral the the wild beast and you know make sure that we did it in a way that was financially reasonable um she doesn't get enough credit for that but you know my dad as you probably could tell is he's a he would be an impossible person to manage like he, there's no i would have fired my dad about a thousand times probably because he's he's, <laughs> he's he's uh he's a he's a maverick but uh I, I do think that it's important that if we want to kind of keep going and be successful, we have to try to multiply the innovative mindset beyond things that what he and I can be experts at. It's a very interesting point that I'm a difficult guy to manage. And maybe that's the reason that they didn't hire me when I needed a job. In, in, oh, I guarantee you that's the reason <laughs> because they said, okay. We know who you are. And they, they said, well, you're expensive. But they should have said, I can't manage you because you're going to take my job away. Well, that or you're not going to listen. I mean, or I'm not there, Pat, there are plenty of times where he didn't listen to my good ideas. So, <laughs> so, so it, 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 it may be one of the things that one must have is a, a freedom to think, freedom to choose. And sometimes those things that you choose are not the same thing that the other person near you. So it's a very difficult proposition. I remember years ago when I hired a PhD, very successful man in his own right. And we went into engineering meetings and he always had every reason why something will not work. Nothing worked for him. Then he left me and he went to teach at, I think, in a Naval Academy or someplace, and he was very successful. In other words, sometimes people have too much fear in their soul. They're afraid to lose. They don't make the pot. They don't, they have a good idea. They don't make the pot. They don't run it. They don't try to find out if it worked because they're afraid to lose. Because if it doesn't work, oh, well, you don't know how to make things. And so it's very difficult for people to put themselves on the line and say, okay, this is what I said. You discover these things, you don't invent them because that takes a burden off your soul. You, don't, you just say, oh, I haven't found it yet. Good thoughts. 
Well, thank you, Ference and Chris, for taking the time to talk with me today and share your experiences and stories. It's been a great adventure today. You truly are RF industry icons. For our listeners, please check out our podcast and future episodes of the RF Industry Icons at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening.